The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. I know that fellow from somewhere. If I tried to remember every face I've seen in every galaxy, I'd burn out my circuits. No, this is just not my day. As the symphonic sounds of the Cybertronic Spree fade away like an opening text crawl, we welcome you to In Trouble Again, the Star Wars Droids podcast. The podcast where we look back at Star Wars Droids, the adventures of R2-D2 and C-3PO, the Star Wars animated oddity of the early 1980s. Uh, I am your host, William Thrasher, and with me as always is my counterpart, Matt Shergi. How you doing, Matt? Oh, good. How are you doing, Well. I am doing pretty well, and we've got another really good episode to talk about this week. Uh, This is Episode 8 of Star Wars Droids, The Revenge of Kaibo Ren. It continues the uh, Tamuzan story arc that we've been following for a few episodes. All of our characters are back, and the villain, Kaibo Ren, also returns to get his revenge. And The Revenge of Kaibo Ren, that is the most Star Wars-sounding title we have had uh, on this show so far. It is, it is, and I have to say, you know, the more we get into this story arc, the more useless the first episode is of this story arc. Oh, with the diner and the, Mm -hmm. who's this mysterious alien? Yeah, it kind of would have been nice to sort of let that that story breathe a bit and have more impact on things. We have Kaibo Ren, and he is captured from last time, right? (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, the at the end of the, as we know, at the end of the previous episode, the uh, the, the the fleet of uh, Tamuzan is able to uh, take down the pirate fleet, and they are able to capture the Demolisher, a uh, a uh, star, a light star destroyer that Kaibo Ren had stolen from a dry dock to use for his assault on Tamuzan. Now, it, it, it is pointed out, like, the Empire has to know that that star destroyer is missing, and that Star Destroyer is not addressed in this episode. So do you think that Star Destroyer is like in a parking orbit around Tamuzan? Or do you think Tamuzan returned that Star Destroyer to the Empire to collect some kind of reward? Hmm. I Yeah, that's a good point. I don't maybe they scrapped it for parts. That's another possibility. Oh, that's, I, I suppose so. I'm mean, sure but, that would have yeah. had useful technology in it. But it is interesting in both this and in the uh, the Ewok show, um, the Empire isn't really covered that much. Yeah, so far the Empire's really existed on the periphery. The Both the Empire and the Rebellion have been mentioned, but the only real indicators we have of the Empire is one, that stolen uh, Star, Star Destroyer carrier, and... Um, 
the uh, Admiral Screed, who was in the uh, Race to the Finish episode, who will be coming back later, uh, and uh, Kaibo Ren's right-hand man, who wears ill-fitting Stormtrooper armor. Yeah, so you see some visual cues, but not... Um, which I guess makes sense, because it's like, um, you know, you don't have Luke Skywalker running around on the show. It's, it is focused on the droids and the different masters and the different friends they have. Yeah, and in this one, uh, and we're we're still kind of picking up some pieces from the previous episode. So the pirates are defeated. So they they've all been captured. So uh, Kaibo Ren is in solitary confinement. Presumably, his other pirates are in some other dungeon on Tamuzan. But uh, we don't really start uh, with uh, we don't exactly start with with the pirates. All we see is uh, is uh, Kaibo Ren's right hand man trying to sneak his way. Uh, into the palace on Tamuzan. Uh, his initial attempt is foiled because R2-D2 and C-3PO are delivering food to some sort of banquet, and the first draft of the meal falls out the window and lands on the right-hand man who then, you know, loses his grip and falls back to the base of the palace. But the whole reason they're delivering food is it turns out Manjulpa isn't technically the king of all of Tamuzan. There is a a significant group of people uh, led by a uh, warlord by the name of Lord Toda who don't recognize his rule. Uh, They also, they're clearly the same species, but they have a different skin color. Manjulpa and his people are purple. Uh, Toda and his people are light blue. So that implies some like racial dimorphism uh, amongst the people of Tamuzan. We, We don't really get much into the politics of it beyond the fact that they're trying to for- that that uh, Manjulpa is trying to forge an alliance between these two groups of people. It's never really clear why Toda's people reject Manjulpa's rule, or at least don't accept it. This is a bit like what we see in um, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace between the um, the Naboo and the the Gungans. Yeah, but we have yeah we have two two different people living on the living on the same planet, but it's unclear how they sort of fit into the the larger the larger picture and who who respects whose rule. So I do kind of like this because that's that's something that is in particularly in this kind of science fiction that's rare is aliens allowing aliens being being diverse both like racially and culturally in in Star Wars and Star Trek as the two most outstanding examples all aliens kind of end up being the same. And in and, and Star Wars, it's kind of because of the old expanded universe, Star Wars kind of has it the worst, where if a movie shows one alien in a particular context, all expanded universe material puts all aliens of that same species into the same context. So in the cantina, we see two blue aliens in flight suits. Oh, they're pilots. Their species are good pilots. If it's a role-playing game, they get bonuses to piloting, and you'll only ever see that species being a pilot. Um, If you see, uh, you know, we see uh, a Rodian, uh, we see Greedo as a bounty hunter. So obviously, all of his people are bounty hunters and trackers, and that's all they get to be. But in this episode of Star Wars Droids, that is not the case. We do get a clear sense that the purple people of Tamuzan and the blue people of Tamuzan have their own cultures and traditions and their own laws since they don't respect each other's rules or authority. Right. And uh, although what I think I think is interesting is now that we see that it's not just um, Manjulpa is, is the king, you know, is the only ruler 
or culture on this planet, it does kind of color differently. Um, his victory in the earlier episode where he returns to his planet with the staff and becomes crowned king because he is, you know, there's other rulers on this planet. He just sort of, is he no different from the vizier? Well, you know, and that's something I wonder, like, are, like, would, would the vizier, like, would the, would the vizier, if the vizier had become the king, would the vizier have invaded the blue people's lands? Would he have taken them over? Would he have treated them like some sort of persecuted underclass? You know, it, it throws a new dimension on some conflicts mm-hmm. we've already seen in this story arc. Yeah, which is nice, and it fleshes out the, the planet and the culture, as you mentioned. It, although it is a retcon, this one, I think, is... Is well done. Would have been nice to see some of it earlier, but they only have so. You know, this is not the um, Montjulpa show, although his character has had a lot of focus. Well, you know, it almost was. Well, one thing I was expecting because one thing that they set up early is that Toda has uh, has his two uh, children with him. He has a he has a son, and uh, he also has a do- a daughter, Garen, and Garen. They they set up in this initial peace conference that Garen has feelings for Jolpa. Maybe he has feelings for her. And this is the one episode of Star Wars droids that I don't have any clear memories of to the point where I'm wondering if I ever saw this when the show reran on the sci-fi channel. Um, so when I saw this, I was like, oh, they're setting up Rome and Ju- Romeo and Juliet. This episode is going to be Romeo and Juliet in space. And then they don't do that. Yeah, I thought the same thing watching this, and I, I thought it was a bit bizarre. I mean, so they are kind of um, giving the characters more moments. Uh, well, yeah, well it's it's kind of nice though, because one, it's not it's not obvious, it's not cliche, but also like we get to just see some nice, quiet, tender moments between Garen mm-hmm. and Manjulpa. Uh, but those moments do get interrupted because. Uh, Kylo Ren's right-hand man does manage to sneak into the palace, does manage to bust Kylo Ren out of prison uh, with a with a, uh, a stunner, so they go to steal a spaceship and get off-world. Uh, and while this is going on, Jan, Tosh, R2-D2, and C-3PO are working on an A-Wing fighter. Um, Kylo, Kylo Ren shows up, Manjulpa's there, uh, Garen is there. There's a tussle between all of them. Uh, but in the end, Kaibo Ren uh, stuns everybody and escapes on an A-Wing, having taken uh, Garen hostage. And one thing I do like is that they they don't settle on Garen being a damsel in distress. She fights like hell uh, during this scene before she gets taken. And she never she's never passive in this story, which I find very refreshing, especially considering how female characters when they were portrayed at all, were portrayed by shows in the 80s. Both her and Jessica Mead are so much better than other other women characters that we would have had on TV at the time in animation. Right. Um... Oh, and a bit of design continuity. So uh, Kaibo Ren and his right-hand man, they use a hand stunner to waylay people. Uh, in When we see a stunner used in episode four, it shoots concentric rings. This stunner shoots concentric rings. I kind of like that it's a hand device. It makes it different from a gun. It makes um, something of Kaibo Ren, you know, kind of powerful, kind of threatening, which he usually hasn't been in the past. And in this episode, he's using that stunner all over the place. <laughs> it, it gets a workout. 
Um, but Kaibo, Kaibo Ren takes Garrett and goes to uh, goes to a uh, the a Bog Moon, uh, yet another uh, the Bog Moon of Bogden, uh, which is another one of those one biome planets. And it's a really neat setting because he has a hideout in a crashed starship that looks all creepy and vine covered. Uh, and he sends Tamuzan an ultimatum. They release all of his pirates, and he will return Garen. So there's a lot of back and forth while they while they negotiate uh, on all that. Uh, but of course, our heroes want to rescue them themselves. And I like I like when C three PO uh, is is kind of quick thinking. Um, so C three PO has an idea on how they can find out where Kaibo Ren is hiding. And there's this great scene where Kaibo's right-hand man did not escape, so he's in a dungeon. And C-3PO runs into the dungeon like, Oh no, the interrogator! Oh, I don't want to watch! He does such terrible things! And and just kind of has an awesome sort of panic talking up how terrifying the interrogator's going to be. And then we have a great fake-out where the door to the, to the cell opens and we see this cast shadow, this round object with all these bristling, terrifying tools coming out. And like it, like it's the interrogation droid from Star Wars, but then it's R two D two with all of his attachments out, and they're able to terrify the goon so much that he just spills the beans. And they go, "Oh, thank you!" And then they just they just leave after showering him with confetti. I just feel bad for the goon because he looks traumatized by the experience, and he's shaking. They do a good job with the animation in that scene. But what I love um, though is it's all—it's not torture; it's all psychological. They just like they—they—they they, they play on his his fears uh, to to get him uh, to confess without ever having to lay a hand on him or, or put him under any kind of uh, physical or, or uh, stress. But all the one thing is that Arku has all these like attachments that that comes out, and there's this one bit where it's like, "Oh, what are you going to do?" And Arku comes out with this thing. And both C-3PO and the goon are like, oh, no! And like, what did they think that thing was going to do? It's just like a little knob. <laughs> Although I guess that's I don't just know. I think C-3PO is just jacked up. He hasn't... I don't know if robots have adrenaline. He has something going through him. But, but it's, 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 a, it's a great scene, and I like that, that C-3PO... I like it when the droids take an active hand in the story, and so, the, so that, that works really well. It plays up to both C-3PO and R2-D2's strengths. Uh, but now that they don't know where it is, uh, uh, Jan and Jessica fly out to uh, Bogdan, and they decide to split up. Uh, Bogdan goes off with uh, C-3PO, Jessica goes off with Kaibo, or not with uh, R2-D2, uh, to either find Kaibo, Ren, or Garen. But what I love, what I love about it is that Garen's locked up in a cell, and she's surrounded by these uh, these space wolves. Uh, you can tell they're space wolves because they have these little tendrils in the bottom of their jaw, and she's not content to be locked up. So she 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 tricks one of the the creatures into entering her cell, and then runs out of the cell, locking the door be- or jamming the door behind her. Like she escapes and is on the run. And every time you think she's going to be backed into a corner, she fights back harder. Which, which again, I love about the character. That is a good character trait. I mean, if this was any other '80s cartoon, she would have been locked up the whole time, waiting for someone to save her. Instead, and, and- she's a more active role in the story. 
Yeah, it's really great. I mean, she 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 frees herself, which which is which is so great. And uh, eventually, she does uh, she does run into uh, Jan and C three PO when she when she's using a piece of collapsed bar to fend off uh, the monsters. And what I really love is that Jan goes to try to rescue her, but then he falls and becomes vulnerable. So C three PO decides to take an active hand in things. C three PO like strides into the middle of the pack, like okay, you brutes, now you have C three PO to deal with. Oh, and then he like he runs away. And what I love is when he runs away, he goes like, "Master, master, I'm creating a diversion." Yeah, <laughs> and they chase him away. <laughs> it's a very C3PO moment. He can't. He can never stay quiet. Um, the animation as he's running away, I think, is, is pretty amusing. With his flappy and arms, I like in this sequence. You just have so much action being cross cut between whether it's. Uh, yeah, and it's characters cool. it's, escaping, it's... or they're trying to find out what's going on, and um... but R two D two and uh, Jessica they end up getting uh, they they find Kaibo Ren in his control room, but they don't know that he has a force field, which is what's been keeping all the planet's predators from messing with him. They get stunned by the force field and get tangled up in these uh, predatory vines. And uh, Kaibo Ren puts on his survival suit. This is after, so Kaibo Ren, um, he's managed to negotiate that they are going to release his pirates, but as a show of good faith, Manjulpa has to be the one to deliver the pirates so that then he can pick up uh, Garen. Uh, and this is another thing that I that I love is that the pirates are on their cruiser, so it implies that the Tamuzan fleet went to Tornuga and impounded all the pirates' equipment. Because if you remember... Kaibo Ren's flagship was not in the space battle at the end of the previous episode. It was left behind on Tornuga. That's right. It's, yeah, there must have been uh, something going on for that to happen. Um, well, like I like that it's implied that things are still happening between episodes. Yeah, no, like, it, it feels very lived in. And I, I think with the, this story arc with the Monjulpa, you have a lot more... Um, of kind of a cohesive ongoing narrative than what you had with the first story arc. Yeah. Every, everything flows into everything else pretty smoothly. They also do a better job, like introducing characters. Like, as we mentioned, you know, Kaibo Ren shows up in what's effectively a cameo in the second episode of this arc. So, so that it's, so that it's easier to introduce him when he's a main villain in the third and fourth episode, which is rather nice. But uh, R2 and Jessica do escape from the Tangle Vines because they they know a double cross is coming and they want to warn everybody. Um, so the cruiser shows up and it's actually pretty cool because uh, all the 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 pirates come out and uh, and you know Kaibo's right hand man is there. He's like, "Oh, it's so good to see you!" And Kaibo ran runs towards them and all the pirates are excited. Kaibo runs past the pirates and starts hugging his cruiser. Yeah, that shows you where his true um, loyalties lie. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, and then then he explains, uh, Manjuba's in, in cuffs, and he explains to Manjuba, oh, I had no intention of letting you go. Now I've got my crew, my ship, and two hostages. And then Manjuba's like, oh, we anticipated this, and Manjuba hits a hidden switch on the cruiser. The side of the cruiser opens, and Lord Toda's warriors are there. And a thrilling space battle ensues. I don't know if I'd call that thrilling, but it, it's a nice well, it's a shootout. Yeah, but it's a shootout. But it is nice to see that at the end of the day they can reconcile their differences together among this common goal. 
Um, you you sometimes mentioned uh, the being critical of the animation, and there is one shot that I think was pretty terrible. It's an establishing shot at the end where all the bad guys are rounded up, and they're very off model. You know, I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that because there's one animation fluke, and this this episode has some pretty good animation, some pretty good like effects animation. But there is one thing that really jumped out to me too uh, when uh, Jessica and uh, Jan are flying to Bogdan in their two A wings. Uh, Jan's mouth is moving, but Jessica's dialogue is coming out of it. Oh, that's funny. That that happens a lot in these cartoons. For the entire sequence. <laughs> but yeah, that was something that would often happen um, with with the the voices, depending on who was was animating them. But it's pretty cool that people come together. They agree. They agree to the piece. I like that all the all the negotiating with Kaibo Ren was just to stall for time while they put that hidden compartment uh, into his vessel. So it's great. You know, peace came to things. But in the but in the end. Um, you know, Garen and Manjulpa are probably going to, you know, their romance is going to continue. Uh, we can assume they're going to get married, but it's not like it ends with a proposal. But one thing that I both love and hate, because it involves something coming out of nowhere, is Jessica Mead's like, well, I'm going to go now. Like, you know, we, we, we all have our dreams and our destiny. You know, I, I, got, my, I got my freighter business that I want to concentrate on now, now that things are good here. And also, Jan, you've got the Space Academy, which comes out of nowhere. What are they talking about? Is he going to go to a space academy? Is he going to found a space academy on Tamuzan? The really weird thing is, like, this next episode of the show, they don't have a new master. They're just on the planet doing stuff with Kobe. Oh, yeah, the the kid. So it's sort of like a weird standalone thing before they get to the next uh, proper story arc. Uh, so, yeah, it is just really forced and rushed, and it's not... It doesn't work nearly as well as, um, you know, what we had at the end of the first story arc of the characters saying goodbye, sort of. You know, or you're establishing reasons as for these characters leaving here. You just have a few tossed out lines of dialogue that provide more questions than answers. Yeah, especially since, especially since Jan was kind of established as being one of... Of of being Manjulpa's kind of advisor and uh, I guess potentially like right hand man. The other alien's not his right hand man. That's his major domo. But yeah, it's 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 weird. I am perplexed by that thing about you have the space academy coming up. Like I wish I knew what that meant. It's not it's not like the it's not like in in uh, in a New Hope when he's like I'm thinking about applying to the academy this year where it's like oh well that's obviously like a stand in for college or something like this. This is just it's it's a it's a non sequitur. But overall, I am very satisfied with this episode. This is one of my favorites so far. It does it does every it's everything I want in a Star Wars story. Yeah, I think there's more action. You get Kaibo Ryan being sort of clever with the characters kind of outwitting each other. You have different characters being captured, different characters escaping in different ways. Um I, I agree. There's a lot of a lot of good things going on here. Yeah, and 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 I will talk about this more next episode. But the only the the only thing that I wish it had is that when Jessica Mead says that she's going to leave the planet to get back to her shipping shipping business, I am really shocked that the transitional episode isn't R two D two and C three PO on her ship. Whether they're given to her as a gift or whether you know they decide that they're better off with her or she's better off with them, it's it it, it does seem so weird that they're just 
left behind like this. Because I really do want to see more of the adventures of Jessica Mead. I do, as much as I like, I guess I don't like, I am fond of Jan Tosh. I am much more interested in Jessica Mead as a character. Right. How did she get those iron pants? (laughs) The origin of old iron pants. Iron pants, a Star Wars tale. Iron pants origins, yeah. Flying by the seat of your iron pants. It's just, you know, like Han Solo was called Solo. This would just be called Pants. So so I'm satisfied. Are you satisfied? <laughs> yeah, I'm satisfied with this one. Cool. <laughs> oh, one other thing I did want to talk about. So, um, two, well, two things. So we talked about one voice fluke with, with Jan's dialogue coming out of, or I'm sorry, uh, Jessica's dialogue coming out of uh, Jan's uh, mouth. But um, so Kaibo Ren, did you notice that Kaibo Ren's voice keeps changing in this episode? Yeah, it's not consistent. Sometimes it sounds a little bit like John Wayne to me. Sometimes I, it, yeah. I was going to say the exact same thing. Uh-huh. It's either the pirate voice from his first and second appearance, or it seems like a John Wayne impression. But I think it's the same voice actor. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what that was. Maybe they tried different approaches and then weren't paying as much attention. Maybe uh, they had to use some unused lines from past episodes to get him to talk in this one. Although, I mean, this is called The Revenge of Kaibo Ren. But, yeah, his voice is not as consistent as it, um, especially, I think, in that Pirates of Tornuga episode, he was very consistent with how he sounded. So, it, yeah, it's it's disappointing. It's weird. Um, it'd be one thing if he's doing a different voice to try and scare people off, but he's not. It just, it's disorienting. Yeah. But, um, but Lord Toda, so uh, Lord Toda is played by an actor an actor named Graham Campbell and his voice, it stands out. Like when I first heard it, I almost thought it was Tim Curry trying to be kind of more gruff, Mm. but it turns out uh, he is an actor uh, born in Australia who has a really interesting filmography. Um, He was in Rupert the Bear. He was in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He was in Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. Friday the 13th of the TV series. He he will come back as the voice of Admiral Screed in later episodes of uh, Star Wars Droids. And... And I, I really like fell down and uh, fell down like uh, going through his his filmography. He just has some amazing stuff. Tragically, and I feel so cheated by this. He died in 1992 at the age of 51. Heart attack or I, I could not find a cause of death, so hmm. I I do not know. But I I will I will say he was definitely taken too early. I would love because he was working right up until he died. I would love to have seen, like, what he could have done. Like, can you imagine him doing a voice in Batman, the animated series, or, or some sure, of, like, Disney yeah. or Pixar's new output? It, it's such a good, distinct voice. I want to hear yeah. more of it. No, I think Lord Toda's voice was above the quality of most of the other um, voice acting we've heard in the series. And not that it's bad, but a lot of it, you know, with the, apart from Anthony Daniels, is just kind of land and just kind of sits there. Uh, but Lord Toda had some... Weight, weight to his character, and, and the voice uh, performance was a big part of that. What well, the other thing is is all the other aliens on this planet speak so slowly. He's the only person that, that talks at a good clip. Everyone else is welcome to Tambuzan, and he's like, "Let's get to the point. Have you come here to deceive me?" Right, right. Um, well, that was more Kaibo Ren. Uh, there was, a, "Have you come here to deceive me?" Like, there, there's, as I said, there's something Tim Curry-ish about his voice that I really like. Yeah. I, I, I could see that. Uh, so, 
with all this, let's um, go on to the next segment. Droid Eye for the Jedi. Ah, yes, for we need to figure out who is, in fact, the secret Jedi Master. Is there somebody you'd like to nominate? Hmm. Secret Jedi Master. I think it would be one of the uh, the Space Wolves towards the end. Really? Yeah. I think in in those little... Uh, was it tentacles or something at the, on the chin of the creature? Yeah, they have the little tendrils or feelers. The tendrils, yeah. Stored force powers. And he prevented his other um, brethren, so to speak, from, from being too vicious. From destroying our heroes. <laughs> he could sense the heroes were, were going to set things right. And so he used his force powers to calm his fellow wolves. So so that's uh so so th- so they look gruff but they're actually on the side of our heroes. They're they're the good guys. Uh at, at least yes, at least this one in particular I'm talking about. Yep. Oh, and actually those uh those uh wolf creatures uh they're called uh, songwas. Of course, yeah, sunwa. So Although no one calls them sunwas, right? Uh no, uh Kaibo Ren refers to them by name uh at least 3 times. Does he? Um, you know, I was reading a, a funny. I was reading a biography of George Lucas, and when they get to Star Wars droids, the animated series, uh, Stuart Copeland has a story that he says he thinks the only reason George Lucas made this cartoon was to sell more action figures, because when he w- was going to play his version of the theme song, George Lucas was more focused on the droids' action figures on his desk than what the theme song huh. was. Really, but I think that's a bit too cynical. I think you know he was more involved in these things than people think, and certainly George Lucas was quite involved in the uh, Clone Wars series. And, and he was trying to keep Star Wars in the public eye. I mean, all, all throughout the eighties, the the like the the thread was, well, that new trilogy is going to start production any day now. Yeah, and I mean that uh, doing the cartoon is a cost-effective way to keep it in the public eye. I mean, that's why Star Trek did the animated series for two seasons, right? Indeed, yeah. In the public eye, and uh, apart from the repeats of the original show, and the whole plan uh, Gene Roddenberry had was to do a cartoon that would eventually lead to another movie, and more or less that's what happened. It took longer, I think, than he wanted, but. Oh, actually, another another tangent before I nominate my Jedi Master. I, I just noticed this, and I can't believe I, I just noticed this now. So uh, Kaibo Ren's uh, flagship, the cruiser, uh, it's called the Dianoga. Yeah, and, and that's that creature from Star Wars A New Hope in the trash compactor. Yeah, that slimy, that slimy trash creature. That's an appropriate name for this, this kind of junker of a vessel that nevertheless has a, a certain amount of firepower. <laughs> Definitely. So who who do you think is the secret Jedi? So I think the secret Jedi master uh, is, in fact, uh, Lord Toda. Uh, he certainly has a lot. Of, I mean, he's known as a war chief. He certainly has the, the, the martial arts training uh, that a Jedi might have. He, he also has a mysterious... If you'll notice, his weapon is this weird-looking rod. So rem- certainly reminiscent of lightsaber technology. Also, it can deflect blaster fire just like a lightsaber does. I'm thinking that that is a lightsaber in disguise. Maybe he's even mind-tricking everyone to see a non-lightsaber weapon when he's using it because he wants to stay He wants to stay on the down low. And we know he has uh, he has two kids. So I'm betting... 
He was a full-fledged member of the Jedi Order, but then he fell in love. And he got drummed out for having a relationship and for knowing love. Which, as we all know from the poster uh, for uh, Episode 2, uh, A Jedi Shall Not Know Love. Uh, that's why I believe that he is, in fact, the secret Jedi Master in this story. I think that's a pretty compelling argument myself. Yeah, so, uh, audience, uh, if uh, audience and listeners, because I know those are two distinct and different groups... Tell us what you think. You know, comment, uh, comment. Send us, uh, send us email. Hell, maybe even send us the occasional threat. I mean, any publicity is good publicity. That's right. In fact, um, what on the on the Twitter account of something Star Wars related, someone mentioned droids, and then I proceeded to pimp our podcast, and then some guy struck me down for it. Oh yeah, you like, said, "Hey, if you're interested, yeah, something like yeah. along the lines of, hey, if you're interested in droids, right. we're doing a, a show where we recap it." And immediately, immediate response: hard pass. What is yeah. the point of that response? We're not. Uh, gonna I, stop I don't know, doing but I, I will say, you know, one guy said hard pass, and I had four people say, "Oh, thank you. I'll check it out." So, well, that that's true. It's an it's and, a net and it's benefit. not like I just brought up our podcast out of nowhere into a thread. I, they were mentioning this cartoon, and I said, "Oh, well, we talk about it at our little show." So. You'll just have to see um, how that all happens. Uh, and we're on to another segment. Am I right? Uh, we, we will be, actually, because I had, I had something very similar. Because uh, okay. I almost jumped onto that thread, but I kind of thought better of it. I, I was uh, a, 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 a professional who I really admire had recommended, had kind of recommended this science fiction series. Uh, and I just said, you know, and I just responded like th- this has convinced me I'm going to buy the first book in this series right now or I'm going to order it right now and immediately someone responds no order this it's a better book like, what the fuck is that supposed <laughs> to be and I almost responded like I almost responded no thank you or who, what is this for but you know I, I just wash my hands of it for, I'm still going to read this series uh, and I, I am going to start at the beginning why not I I don't mind starting at, at the beginning I don't have to start at the high point I feel like it's a weird way to read it anyway. But yes, we do have another segment, uh, Expanded Universe, where we talk about non-movie Star Wars media that we have been experiencing, if not enjoying. Right. Um, I've been trying one out lately. It was something I played a lot in uh, high school, and it's not very good, but it, it's interesting in just how strange uh-huh. it is. This is the uh, the tie-in um, video game for the movie The Phantom Menace. This was released on uh, PlayStation 1 and I think the computer for some reason. And um, what's weird about it is it has kind of an overhead perspective. And some levels are more like an adventure game where you're on Tatooine, you're trying to get parts for the, uh, for the engine, for the, um, the pod racers. Um, but because it's overhead, like the combat just doesn't feel very dynamic. It looks kind of like a a worse version of Diablo in some way. Really? Yeah, and um, the real frustrating thing is I never beat it and still was unable to beat it because you get to the final... And this is, like, really a, a bug in my opinion, but you fight against Darth Maul, and you can save wherever you want to, which is unfortunate because I saved in the part where I got stuck. But oh, no. You, you, so listen to this scenario. You, you have Darth Maul... You, you run him out of all his energy, and his body is just there kind of on this bridge uh, where there's pits all around you. And so Darth Maul is just laying there going, Urgh! 
and he never dies. To kill him, you have to do something that's not even in the movie, nor does the game tell you you have to do it. You have to toss a thermal detonator on his dead body, and that will push him and blow him off the edge. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So, um, I, I can't recommend the game, but I will say something sort of strange. The PlayStation 1 release was delayed quite a bit, and to make up for it, they added a music video that was on MTV for the um the duel of the fates duel of the fates number yeah yeah can you imagine there was a time when a f- excerpt from the soundtrack of a star wars movie was enough to sort of hijack mtv for about a half hour yeah and um i mean it's a neat music video it uses darth maul lines that weren't in the film it, it kind of combines dialogue with the music and so forth, and it's well cut together, but it, it's a, it was a strange extra on there. And so this game, I think, was worse. I think the one I talked about the week before, um, Jedi Power Battles, is a better kind of action Star Wars game. Um, so there you go. All right, so I've also got a, a Star Wars game that's a bit of a disappointment. And, and this is... I mentioned this game on last week's episode, so I'm going to talk about it now, and that is Star Wars Han Solo Card Game. Not the Han Solo Card Game. It is literally called Star Wars Han Solo Card Game. Was this the tie-in to the movie? Yes, the tie. it was the tie-in for the movie, and, and the movie's branding is all over the box. We get the all, all, all uh, three of the main stars for that movie are on the box. Uh, we get the droid revolutionary. They're all standing around a Sabic table. So this... This game, as much as I wanted to like this game, uh, this game feels like uh, we were a month away from the premiere of the movie, and then somebody realized, oh shit, there's a card game in that movie, and we don't have a card game tie-in project. Put something out! Because every everything about this, this game, all the ingredients are right, but everything about it feels like it needed more time to cook. Um, so we all know in the Han Solo movie... Uh, and from Star Wars lore, that Han Solo wins the Millennium Falcon from Lando Calrissian in the game of Sabic, and yep. we get to see characters playing Sabic. And in fact, we see that game uh, in the movie, and it's played with these neat kind of six-sided cards with symbols and things on them. So this tries to sort of simulate that part of the movie, um, and it comes in this really well. One, this game box is too big. Uh, the box is bigger, is way bigger than what it contains. It's this awkwardly sized and shaped six-sided box. Now, the six-sided cards look great. Uh, you all can't see it, but Matt and I are on a webcam. Mm-hmm. Um, the the cards are six-sided. They look just like they do in the movies. They have this really nice professional texture. They're, they're what I like in a high-grade playing card. The only thing I don't like is the giant Star Wars logo on the back, but I will forgive yeah. that because that is is that's inevitable with this kind of branded uh, material. I just wish the back was more immersive. And like a real playing card, because the the business end of these cards, they read the same whether they're right side up or upside down, just like a standard playing card. Uh, But the backs don't have that. And I hate looking at upside down logos. That drives me crazy. (laughs) So that, that, although that's more about me and less about the game. But um, the game, as you play it, uh, the whole the way the way you do you play a series of, of rounds and 
the goal is you want your hand to be as close to zero as possible. You win the round by having a hand of cards which is as close to equaling zero as possible. So all the cards go from one to ten in both positive and negative numbers. So so there's a little bit of math involved, and there are two zero cards. Um, so that's that's pretty decent. The problem is the way you determine the value of hands in the event of a tie is completely nonsensical. So if you have a tie, positive numbers beat negative numbers. So whichever hand has the highest positive number is the winner. Okay, that makes sense. Except that it's because there's multiples of each card, you can still have a tie. So then it's based around how many cards are in your hand. And this is where a lot of the confusion comes up because... According to the reference sheet, the best possible hand is a plus 10 card, a negative 10 card, and a zero card. Unfortunately, according to the rules that more so, but then according to the rules, more cards beat less cards. And it's possible to have a hand that still wins with that same total, but that has fewer cards than the best hand. Um, so it, there's a lot of sort of counterintuitive and contradictory design choices that make it really difficult to interpret what a winning hand is. The other thing, and this should be the coolest part of the game, are the dice. The game comes with two dice, which are just like the dice that hang from the Millennium Falcon's uh, control console and are just like the dice that are used when they play the game in the movie. I hate these dice for two reasons. One is mechanical and one is aesthetic. So aesthetic, I'm going to get this out of the way. This game is published by Hasbro. Hasbro owns Wizards of the Coast, which publishes Dungeons & Dragons. They should have people who know dice. There's no reason. These are shitty dice. They feel chalky. They feel delicate. They feel like they're going to crack open the first time you roll them. These dice are beneath this game. And... They're not even, like, gold-colored. They're, like, this gooey gray. They look like expired toothpaste. Like, why aren't they colored? Like, you do some product synergy. Why aren't they colored the same way they are in the movies? We've been looking like, at these dice for, what, six movies now? I would like to point out, in the original Star Wars movie, the dice are just this typical 70s fuzzy dice. And they sort of retcon it in... Um, the other movies where it's these tiny gold dice. Oh, the space dice, yeah. That are more distinctive. But um, what you have, I mean, it's, so it sounds like the rules are so contradict themselves. They're unclear. Did you try watching like YouTube videos of people playing this game? Or no, to, like, although board game geek or whatever. No, and I may I maybe should have. It's just that I found those videos to be such a mixed bag that I tend to stay mm-hmm. away from them. Uh, only, uh, only because some sometimes they are not nearly as clear or explanatory as they think they are. Um, I would rather just play the game myself and learn by doing. But mechanically, what's fucked up about these dice is at the end of every round, before complaining, comparing hands, you roll the dice, and if they match, you just everyone discards their entire hand and draws a new one at random, thus negating every strategic decision you have made huh. up to that point. Wow, it's all or nothing. Yeah, that is so fucked up. Like, I, I'm not against the idea that the dice can make someone or everyone discard their hand, but if you're going to do that, that needs to happen at the beginning, not at the end. It needs to be a quirk yeah, you can, recover from. Right. Because I could totally see a, a scorched earth situation where my hand is shitty and I want to take that risk. 
but it it negates so much. Um, and, oh, and the other thing, and this is another thing that's kind of a mixed bag, is that the game comes with these. You know, it's it's you know inspired by poker, so the game comes with these neat kind of Star Wars credit chips, oh, and yeah. they're credit chips on one side, but on the other side. It's property, so it's like you're legitimately gambling for resources in the Star Wars universe. And there's five different colors. Four of them correspond to different types of technology, weapons, armor, vehicles, and equipment. The final color is bright blue, and there's only one There's only one of them, and that's the Millennium Falcon, which has the highest credit total value. They all list a, t- a total value. The Millennium Falcon has the highest total value. So clearly, you know, it, the winner is whoever has the greatest value of stuff. Uh, and so you're you're ahead if you can get the Millennium Falcon. And there's also a rule that you can attempt to steal the Millennium Falcon in the middle of the game. And the way you steal it has more to do with the dice than it does to to your card play. And that's, again, an awkward game design decision. The other thing is you're not really gambling. You're trying to win these. Um, you lay out a random... You lay out uh, a certain number of these, card, these cards every round. The person with the winning hand takes from that pile. You don't actually gamble. You don't ante these. And so, like, like when every time I read or play this game, all I want to do is, is take these components and redesign it from the ground up. And that's what I intend to do the next time I play, is play my version of this. So, one, um, you have you choose whether you roll the dice, and it's more about trying to get rid of a shitty hand than fucking up the entire game. Two, everybody's going to start with a randomized stash of these credit chips, so you actually have to ante and raise, just like in poker, but also just like in poker, you can decide not to play. You can bow out of a round. Um, so there's more strategic... Like, I want I want it to feel more like old-timey riverboat gambling, is I guess what I'm trying to say. This is a game with, with the exception of the dice, great components, that is a poorly thought-out game. And so I would, I would say give it a pass, unless you can find a variation that makes the game more interesting. Uh, a better representation of Sabuk is the game uh, Science Fiction Flux, or Space Flux. Star Flux, that's what it is. Star, Star Flux. Flux. Star Flux. Okay. Oh, and the cool. other thing is, because of the, the awkward tray this is packed in, the tray is so tight, it's a struggle to get the cards out of the tray, but then mm. you have to lift the tray out to get to the credit chips. But then when you're putting packing the game up, you have to have the credit chips just so in the middle of the box to get the, the tray to sink in all the way. So that's another problem with the unconventional way this is packaged. We had a bit of a mishap with board games ourselves. A few weeks ago, we were going uh, to... Uh the beach uh, with some friends and we packed the uh, game Lords of Waterdeep oh, cool. which has a lot of pieces and I almost got it into the car and uh, just as uh, I had this uh, cardboard box overpacked with board games and just as I got there it flipped over and all like 800 pieces spilled Ooh. on the sidewalk and the side of the road that that happened to me with uh, the base so, Arkham Horror game. I'm, oh, I'm no. amazed yeah, so I survived. We had, to, we had to spend like 20 minutes picking up these little pieces. We were all set to go. It was pretty ridiculous. But then afterwards, we, it taught us a lesson to put some rubber bands on the box. Smart idea, smart idea. Yeah, and we also have friends that do something where they have plastic baggies, and with almost every board game they have, they re-put the pieces in the baggies. <laughs> I do that with some games. Mm-hmm. 
Um, all right, well, good. So next week we're going to talk about Kobe and the Star Hunters. Which is probably the cheesiest title we've ever had, but hopefully the episode is better than its title. Right. Um, it reminds me of what uh, Ewan McGregor said when he didn't know the new title of the Star Wars movie, Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, until he was on a talk show. And oh, yeah, and he like it. didn't believe it? Yeah, he's like, they're not calling it that, are they? That can't possibly be the title. <laughs> <laughs> and um, to be fair, you know, the clones are not... I mean, they're they're part of the plot, but as far as them attacking things, maybe in the last ten minutes? <laughs> that That's true, that's true. And also, they are fighting for the Republic, who we thought were the good guys. <laughs> right, I mean, you, you might as well call it Episode 2, Protect the Padme. <laughs> the 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 Amadala uh, imperative. Yeah, that's the Tom yeah, Clancy version. Would have made more sense. Um, all right, great. So um, you can follow uh, if you like the show. Just uh, go on your uh, favorite podcast app, look up Sequel Cat, Sequel Cast Two, and Friends, and uh, leave a review. Um, or you can send us a message uh, on Twitter at Sequel Cast Two. Um, you can or, follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Yeah, follow me at MATWBT. So for droids in trouble again, uh, this is Matt. <laughs> and this is Thrasher. Same. Well, I have the best luck of all on my side. The luck of friendship. <laughs> <laughs>